0: On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio
1: Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: And coming up today, an end to the empty frozen chip shelves at your supermarket.
1: They're pulling spuds out of the ground flat out, both companies. They're um, both back to full operations, which for them is uh, a 24-7 arrangement, 12-hour shifts. So um, they are full-on trying to get chips back onto the uh, uh, onto the shelves.
2: And keeping livestock out of important waterways.
3: There's three creeks that come together and all meet in Thurston, and that's what makes up the Panatana Rivulet, which comes out down in Portsrell. So this is basically the catchment for most of Sassafras, Moriarty, the district, really. So it all comes down through here.
2: They're fencing the creeks across the state, And finally, an end to the frozen chip shortage in our supermarkets. Those stories coming up on day one of autumn. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek start to the new season. And in just a moment, predictions about the rainfall we can expect in Tasmania over the next three months. Also today, the launch of the first electric logging truck for use in forestry operations. Plus all the livestock details from Parana with Richard Bailey. He reckons the mutton market is the lowest he's seen in many years. i will also check the weather as well. Take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 936. That number 0438 922 936. First up today, a brand new autumn season ahead of us as we bid goodbye to summer. So what are the expectations for rainfall in the state over the next three months? Senior climatologist with the Bureau of Meteorology, David Wilson, says the predictions are for average to dry weather across different parts of the state.
4: The rainfall outlook for autumn for Tasmania looks a little bit drier than average. So for the three months March to May, we're, especially for the western half of Tasmania, we're looking at around about 40% chance to 30% chance of exceeding the average rainfall. So that's for the western half of Tassie. To the eastern half, we're looking at around about average conditions.
2: Is that similar on the uh, east coast, on the mainland as well?
4: Yeah, on the mainland, more broadly for Australia, the rainfall outlook for March to May is for below average rainfall, uh, except for the east coast.
2: What's driving the weather pattern at the moment?
4: We're seeing La Nina break down in the Pacific Ocean right now. The ocean temperatures are back to neutral and the atmosphere is moving back to neutral conditions as well. So we're expecting neutral conditions, um, neither El Nino nor La Nina, for the coming few months. Prediction for this time of, at this time of year is a little bit difficult, but the models are suggesting uh, um, moving towards drier conditions for Australia.
2: Now the temperatures, obviously we're coming out of summer into autumn, uh, the temperatures are lower, but um, what, what's the outlook for temperatures for Tasmania?
4: Yeah, the outlook for temperatures for Tasmania for autumn, maximum temperatures are ex- very likely to be above average statewide. We have more than 80% chance statewide.
2: And how was summer? Have you had a chance to uh, look at the summer figures?
4: So summer in Tasmania was among the driest 10% of all summers since 1900 for the western half of Tasmania, and days and nights were warmer than average across the state.
2: And I'm assuming the East Coast had its fair share of rain?
4: The East Coast did get its fair share of rain. The summer overall was, rainfall was 30% below average for Tasmania overall. But the East Coast had a roundabout average seasonal rainfall.
2: That's climatologist with the Bureau, David Wilson, and the predictions for rainfall for Tasmania. Over the next three months of the autumn season, average to dry conditions across different parts of the state after a very dry summer season. And more information on the autumn outlook for the whole country on the BOM website. Just put BOM in your search engine and climate outlook and you'll go straight there. And I'd be interested to hear what sort of rainfall was in the gauge over the summer period wherever you are in the state. 0438 936. Let us know. 0438 922 Well, good news for consumers today. The big chip shortage appears to be over. After weeks of empty shelves in supermarkets across the state, the frozen chips are making their way back. State organiser of the AMWU, Mike Wickham, says workers at Simplot and McCain's are busy processing the potatoes from the new harvest around the clock.
1: Everything's um, underway and back to normal, so they're, um, they're pulling spuds out of the ground flat out. Both companies, they're um, both back to full operations, which for them is uh, a 24/7 arrangement, 12-hour shifts. So um, they are full on trying to get chips back onto the uh, into the under uh, the shelves.
2: Have the chips rolled out from the factory yet?
1: Oh yeah, they certainly are. They're, uh, they're punching them out pretty rapidly.
2: Uh, it must be good news that uh, it's back to normal with the uh, potato harvest.
1: Oh, it is good news for everybody. Good news for um, uh, the workers, good news for consumers, uh, everybody, absolutely.
2: How many workers are there at Simplot and uh, how many at McCain's?
1: Uh look, we're up around about the 220 at uh, Simplot and Olsen, McCain's around about ni- uh, close to 100, I would think, by now.
2: Mm. And they're working weekends as well? They do, mate, seven days a week. So what's it been like the last couple of months? I mean, uh, do they have to have less staff working there?
1: Well, most, both factories have a Christmas shutdown period. So they do their, their annual shutdowns for four weeks, five if uh, needed, where they do maintenance and uh, clean up and everything. And that's the only opportunity during the year for people to take annual leave in real terms. So that's a normal practice. Um, and they both commence work again in late January, which is, it's pretty normal. And thankfully there was, there was uh, potatoes ready to harvest for them.
2: And it's, it- was an unusual uh, period wasn't it have you ever seen anything like it with the lack of spuds
1: Uh, not for a lot of years that's for sure it's been probably a pretty unique situation uh, with the weather and uh, what it done to our harvest but not only potatoes it affected vegetables and and not only Tasmania of course it was um, around the country
2: and these uh, chips that are being processed now are they going around the country uh, as well
1: yeah, they'll go out to the all the normal all the normal but um, um, So they go retail. They'll go to the likes of Woolworths, Coles, the uh, fast food factories, um, IGA. They'll all get them. They'll all should be starting to get them on the shelves now.
2: Can consumers expect to pay more money for, uh, for these spuds this time
1: around, for the chips? Uh, not that I've heard. I don't think there's been any increase um, in the costs from, from either of those companies, not that I'm aware of anyway, and I haven't certainly seen that on the shelves at the moment.
2: And the uh, potatoes that are coming in, uh, are there plenty of them and uh, what what's the quality?
1: The quality is, uh, by all reports, is pretty good. They're um, quantity-wise... Probably going to be a little bit later in the year to see how that holds up. And potentially, you know, they both could be a bit shorter tonnage to what they normally are, but they'll they'll both go close, so we won't have a shortage of chips for for the end of the year, Christmas, into the new year. So. Um, both of Both have done late planting as well, so they should hold up pretty well.
2: And, uh, of course, um, a lot of restaurants, a lot of fish and chip shops, a lot of places like that missed out uh, in the last couple of months. Will they get back to normal very quickly?
1: Yeah, I should imagine so because, as I said, they have been pushing them out now since late January pretty solid. Uh, We should see them all back in in your favourite restaurant pretty shortly.
2: It's Mike Wickham, State Organiser of the AMWU, talking about the return of the frozen chips at a supermarket near you as the new season potato harvest gets into full swing. And as Australia comes out of the hot chip shortage, will there be enough potatoes to go around this year? Another potato farmer, Terry Buckley, started harvesting crisp potatoes last week from his farm outside of Mount Gambier. He says early signs point to a potentially lower harvest yield
5: away we're doing crisping potatoes for sending to Adelaide. Qualities very very good and uh, but our yield I don't think is where it needs to be it's going to be a bit light on and I get a feeling that's going to be the theme for the season a bit
1: and
6: why do you think it will be the theme and any ideas on what might be causing it
5: well we finished up planting a lot of potatoes a month later than we should have uh, as we as we normally do and in, like in Ballarat over there they're like six weeks behind where they should be so it depends now how the autumn goes and already you're getting these quite damp mornings. At times, and when you get that sort of thing, it's hard to keep your crop growing. It tends to want to senesce and die, or the target of blight gets in, and so we need a long, summery sort of an autumn to finish off the crops a are later. So,
6: and do you think this is just your farm or farms across the region?
5: Uh, well, I've heard that like some of the early crops further north, which you know, because they can get some very harsh weather. Uh, heat-wise up there so it's probably been a bit more mild than they would expect up there and they've turned out some very very good results so it's going to be i think it's going to be a year of mixed stories a little bit
6: you know we've just come off of a hot chip shortage do you think there will be enough crisp potatoes to stop a shortage in that area coming up
5: Uh, i think we'll be all right in australia i don't think we're going to run short crisping's a bit different because they harvest potatoes all year round But the french fry situation, it never shows up until December next year, because you'll have enough as you harvest now fresh. But if you finish up not getting your stores completely full, the problem happens November, December. And that's what happened this year. And that's when you'll see it, if it's going to happen again. Hopefully it won't.
6: Are there enough potatoes being grown in Australia or are we just growing just enough?
5: Pretty much just enough and that's getting worse because we tend to be losing growers that you know the money's not working for them or they're getting old or various other reasons there are other things you can do now that pay you know as well as potatoes so there's a lot of reasons why people are sort of moving out of it a bit but the other fairly significant issue is all of this variety right stuff with varieties of potatoes So if you see an opportunity coming, you really can't get the access to the seed because the the potatoes are attached to the processing factories or the washing people and you can't just go and buy them without they let you buy them. Then you can't plant them thinking you might get a big price at the end because you really can't have them unless you have a contract for them. So very little potatoes is now grown where people think there might be an opportunity. We don't really plant anything that we don't have a contract signed for. And then periodically, when you have too many, you finish up getting nothing for them. So you tend not to plant excess. Most years, it balances out. Someone's got a few too many for everyone that's got a few too little. But we're tending to be on the cautious side that you're more likely to run short than oversupply.
6: And has that always been the case, Terry, that growers are growing just to contract? Or has this been kind of developing in this way for a while?
5: Uh, it's been developing this way for quite some time, and yeah, no growers were much more sort of flexible than they are now. I've never got much into it, but some of the old timers go, "Oh, I think the weather's a bit funny, and this is something different. I'll put in an extra paddock just in case, because I think I might do all right out of them." And that's what used to happen. Now it's. been a couple of bad experiences in the last sort of five years with people getting landed with potatoes that didn't have a home and so now no one really takes a risk on it. They're so expensive to grow like you cannot afford to have potatoes left that you can't get a home for because they are so expensive to grow now.
6: And what do those people generally do if they've got too many potatoes?
5: Well we that's why we do some export product because periodically if we've got too many they're able to find a home somewhere in Asia for them. So that gets us out of trouble, but lots of people don't do not do export potatoes. You hope that the processing companies will be able to take them somewhere in their year, but ultimately you dig them up and feed them to your sheep or cows. It's, it's a good and a bad thing about potatoes. If you've got too much wheat, too much wool, too much iron ore, it just goes in a big stockpile and it can haunt you for the next five years. But potatoes being perishable, you've got this enormous glut, you know, maybe in the next three months. But, you know, six months after that, those potatoes have all, you know, they've only got a limited life. And that glut has sort of cleared through and you're on a clean slate and away you go again.
2: That's potato farmer Terry Buckley speaking there with Elsie Adamo about how things are going, (laughs) excuse me, in South Australia, the country's largest potato growing state. Still to come on the Country Hour, a new way of growing oysters catching on with growers and the first electric logging truck in use in the forest.
0: Rick Goddard.
7: International Women's Day has been evolving over the years and I'm thrilled to be broadcasting again from the Royal Hobart Hospital Foundation's International Women's Day fundraiser, March the 8th. The theme this year is Embrace Equity. So what does that look like in the world of medical research, in politics and in governance in Tasmania? Spend a morning live with some of Tasmania's leading minds.
0: Rick Goddard. Monday to Thursday from 5.30am on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: Head into the forest very shortly to check out the electric logging truck. It's been described as the bulk handling of oyster farming and the technology is being used by many oyster farmers across Australia. Known as the Flip Farm, a setup sees baskets travel on what looks like a conveyor belt with all the handling done from the boat. Founder of the Flip Farm, Aaron Pannell, is an oyster grower from New Zealand. He spoke with oyster growers about where to next for the product.
8: Yeah, well it came as I guess a solution to a few problems that we had and I guess it's a, a series of, of events sometimes that these things um, come along. So uh, we were struggling with the, with the current system that we had and particularly in storms and things, losing equipment off the, off the lines. And I'd actually um bought a small company and with it came some spare equipment and that turned out to be uh hexal oyster baskets and it turns out they were the kind of the ideal basket to use for this new system so through a series of events we happened to Fluke on the uh, the system that we um, developed into flip farm.
9: For people that might not have seen it, how would you describe it, and how is it different to what people might think of when they think of an, an oyster farm?
8: Well, the traditional oyster farm uses um, containers to hold the oysters, and they're generally individually handled. So they're handled, so they need to be attached to lines and removed off lines or onto racks. And each one is handled one at a time, and it's picked up and placed onto a boat, and then taken back for for the emptying. Um, With our system we leave all the equipment on the farm. The baskets uh, can rotate around a central pivot and that allows us to open the basket, empty it out, refill it and very importantly it allows us to rotate the basket over onto uh, a float which is attached to the top of the basket which actually elevates the basket and the oysters out of the water and that allows them to dry and that kills off biofouling which is basically all the animals in the sea that want to grow on our equipment.
9: What does that mean in terms of what you can produce um, with the oysters?
8: Yeah, we've got an increase in production off the farms but also an increase in quality because the oysters uh, actually like drying out so the more often you can do that, um, the better that they are. And also, because the equipment stays clean, we get a lot less pests and fouling and diseases and things that affect the oysters.
9: How long did it take to get it set up to where it is today?
8: The first concept we actually uh, the inkling of the idea was in two thousand and fifteen, uh, and we were very busy with our oyster operation, so it took a while to sort of get to a point where we started to commercialise it. Uh, we applied for our patent in two thousand and seventeen. And uh, that was granted early two thousand eighteen, and then from then on, we've continued to develop the commercial side of the business.
9: I heard a comment today from one of the the South Australian growers that it's a little bit like the grain industry with with bulk handling moving into that system. Is that how you would sort of would
0: describe it?
8: Yeah, I came from the muscle industry, which does a lot of that bulk handling. We were often handling hundred to two hundred ton a day. Uh, So you had to have automated systems and bulk handling systems. And another industry in our region, in Marlborough, in the top of the South Island, is the the grape, the wine industry. And I often uh, say it's very similar to a bottling plant. Um, What we were doing before is hand-filling each bottle of wine with with wine, and now we've got a bottling line that we're running these baskets through. It's equivalent to that.
9: And I guess that also means, when it comes to to workers and, and occupational health and safety as well, that more people can uh, work in the oyster industry.
8: Yeah, that's been one of the most amazing things for us and it's something that we didn't anticipate at the start. Traditionally, we had a lot of uh, young um, guys that were working in the industry because it was very physical and they're a really hard demographic to, to source now because everybody's after those sort of workers that can you know put in the, the big days and now basically if you can stand on a boat you can operate the system so we have a, a big range of ages we have men and women working in the, in the teams and that's been really satisfying because it, it, it adds that wide demographic to our teams and it just makes it uh, everybody just works so much better together when you have that range of, of skills and experience.
9: What's been the uptake here in Australia?
8: Pretty significant um, Australia is our biggest market in the world uh, we 're in sixteen countries around the world, and I think the key difference in Australia is that they 're already a very innovative uh, growing um, industry, and a lot of the rest of the world are quite uh, in awe of the australian systems already and so we found that the uptake, it, farmers just got it. They, they can look at it and they go yep that'll work for us. Whereas often in other countries it was such a big step from the very traditional systems they were using that it takes a little bit more education to actually get them to understand all the benefits.
9: Is there some places that it just wouldn't work?
8: It's a surface system and it's 24-7 on the surface so it is exposed to the wave action. We've continuously improve the, the components to the point now where we're reaching the, the place where the oysters are the weakest link, so if you're in an environment where the water's just too rough and the oysters can't grow, then that kind of becomes the limit. But that's different for each farmer. Some farmers' oysters are much harder in the shell and they can be uh, more resilient to that rougher uh, wave action. Um, other oysters, like perhaps uh, in New South Wales, they need um, to be able to grow and they need to be in a calmer environment.
9: We often see with oyster baskets that uh, they can, they've can they only got a certain lifespan and, and uh, the op- opportunities to recycle them are, are not huge. But what about with these kind of baskets? What are the opportunities there and how long do they last?
8: Yeah, I mean, all of our equipment's recyclable, but um, we have a slightly different view on that. We're aiming to use components and materials that last for a very long time. And so, yes, you could create a... A, a system that um, maybe has a five-year lifespan and it's recyclable, um, or you can spend a little bit more on the on the components and the, and the materials and have something that lasts 15, 20 years. So I think um, we, we're kind of looking at a system that doesn't need to be recycled or, or much, much less, uh, less frequently.
9: What are the plans for the future? Where can you see Flip Farm going from here?
8: Look, we're, we're constantly uh, looking at new options. Some of the more exciting things we're working on is uh, submersible systems for the US market. Um, they have ice in the winter, so they have to sink all their equipment under the ice. Uh, they have hurricanes, so they have to have a hurricane protocol for their farms. So at the moment, they take, can take weeks to sink their whole operation. So the latest um, system we're working on means they can sink their whole farm in one to two days. So that's it will be quite a game-changer for them. Uh, and then I think some of the bigger companies, even more automation, and so we can do more of the process on water is, is where we're heading.
9: That's sinking of the equipment, not something you'd see here in Australia, really.
8: No, no, don't tend to have too much ice here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's it's something that you know could potentially lead to us being able to use it in, in rougher environments.
9: Is it something that other species, you spoke about mussels there, but other seafood species can... Um, incorporate into what they're doing?
8: Yeah, any species that can handle being out of the water for a period of time. So the key thing with oysters is they they actually enjoy being out of the water for a time and other species don't. And so we can use that break to actually control the biofouling. So species that can handle being exposed, yeah, definitely an option.
2: Founder of the Flip Farm Oyster Growing System, Aaron Pannell, speaking with Brooke Neindorf about the expansion of the system and the plans for the future.
8: ABC Listen. So uh,
10: what's the craziest question you've ever been asked on the Dr. Carl podcast?
2: We've had everything from prawn
11: allergies to urine volume and what turned out to be giant cosmic vacuum cleaners.
0: We've had an AI writing a sassy email, cheese causing weird dreams.
2: The background is that nothing is really impossible in science.
0: Dr. Carl and Dr. Lucy have all the answers on the Dr. Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: Australia's first electric logging truck is now in operation. The truck, which is only as loud as a four-wheel drive car, will now be transporting tonnes of logs around the Green Triangle in South Australia's southeast, running entirely on renewable electric energy. Sam Bradbrook attended the launch to hear for himself just how quiet a logging truck could be.
12: What you're hearing is Australia's first electric B double truck in action, and it's about to hit the road in South Australia. Mount Gambier's Fennel Forestry and New South Wales Central Coast company Janus Electric have spent two years developing this B double. Fennel Forestry's Wendy Fennel says it has the power to compete with diesel trucks on the roads.
13: So the electric truck is powered by a Dana TM4 engine, which is 540 kilowatts, and it equates to a 720 horsepower engine. So it's uh, has a normal automatic gearbox in it and operates um, all using electric power through the system. It has regenerative braking that uh, mimics that of a engine brake in a normal diesel, so um, with less noise.
12: This B-double was once diesel powered like most other trucks, but it's now 100% electric. It's charged with a swap and go battery system and Fennel Forestry expects one charge to last an entire 12-hour shift on the road. Janus Electric CEO Lex Forsyth has lofty hopes for the electric-powered future of transport. This is the technology for the future for it. I think we'll see the mass electrification of fleets right around the world because electric is far more efficient than some of the other zero emissions energy sources. And the beauty about electric is that it's easy to maintain. There's not a lot of maintenance on these vehicles because of the electric motor. There's, they're a sealed unit essentially. I think where does it look for genus in the future? I think we'll in, in 10 years' time if we haven't got 15 to 20% of the Australian market we haven't done our job properly. The project has been entirely privately funded, including building an on-site charging station. Advocates say electric power is the future and public money should be helping to build infrastructure to support it. SA Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven says she's keen to see the on-road results.
13: I found it fascinating to see what Wendy's been able to do here and I think you know, given that South Australia is such a leader in renewable energy it's certainly something that deserves a closer look. So I'll be very pleased to go back and make some more in- inquiries and be talking with my, my colleagues uh, about what I've seen here today and what the future
12: might, might hold. Ms Fennell came into this project not knowing much about electric transport but she's now the head of an Australia first trial.
13: It's been very interesting. It's been a hard slog because there's still a lot of barriers to being able to put this in. But, yeah, it's definitely exciting learning new technology, seeing where our diesel mechanics are going to now need to learn in a new space. What this can deliver to a transport operation has been very exciting.
2: Fennell Forestry Managing Director, Wendy Fennell, ending that story from Sam Bradbook on the first electric logging vehicle in use in forestry. Still to come on The Country are Keeping the Cows Out of Creeks on Tasmanian Farms. We'll check out the livestock markets with Richard Bailey and also the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward.
14: Thanks, Tony. Tasmania's Veterans Affairs Minister says he's hopeful RSL Tasmania will support an AFL stadium proposed for Hobart's Macquarie Point once it receives more details about the project. The RSL says it can't support the controversial stadium proposal, claiming it will adversely impact the nearby Hobart cenotaph. Federal Liberal Member for Bass, Bridget Archer, says the Albanese the government's proposed changes to superannuation have merit but need further investigation. The government intends to double the tax rate on earnings on superannuation balances above $3 million after promising not to do so before the election. Ms Archer says Labor's argument that the purpose of superannuation is to save for requirement not wealth creation has merit but that Labor still needs to explain their broken election commitment. At least 16 people have died and about 85 others have been injured in a collision of two trains in Greece. The crash between a cargo train and an oncoming passenger train happened near the city of Larissa. Hundreds of passengers have successfully been rescued from the wreckage. More news at one.
2: Time now to check the latest on the weather. First day of autumn and Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. day, Luke.
15: Hey Tony, how are you going?
2: Yeah, not too bad and a good looking day out there. Is it like that for most of the state?
15: Yeah, most of it. So yesterday's cloudy weather is pushed away by a pretty decent westerlies. as a little cold front come over the state overnight. So we've seen some some showers uh, mostly into the west this morning and we're likely to see that continue. They may spill into the far south. Uh, to 9am to we saw between uh, 2 and 6 millimetres of rain into the west with uh, across the north and Even parts of the Midlands and East Coast yesterday afternoon and evening receiving between one to to four millimetres, but it was quite hit and miss. For the remainder of today, you will just see those showers continuing into the west uh, and looking at another three to eight millimetres or so, uh, more about elevated sites. Tomorrow a very similar day to today, uh, plenty of showers about the west and far south but uh, potentially tomorrow afternoon the east coast might see some light showers uh, but, but nothing too significant, looking at 5 to 10 millimetres into the west and less than 2 millimetres into the east coast. Friday looks like a fine day with uh, some northeasterly winds starting to come over the state, there might be the odd shower on the Furneaux Islands but uh, nothing really worth talking about. On Saturday, some showers are redeveloped about the northwest and the northeast, mostly about higher ground, in the range of sort of three to five millimetres. And then on Sunday, that looks like uh, the, those showers in the northeast and the northwest uh, increase uh, to around three to eight millimetres. Um, but uh, then start to see those showers extend uh, to most other areas either Sunday morning or evening with a, a little trough moving across the state. So, in summary, kind of a mild start to autumn. Uh, we'll see some, some more, slightly warmer temperatures on the weekend, and it looks like Monday to Wednesday next week we could see some um, reasonable cold fronts come across the state, as is fairly typical with uh, with autumn.
2: OK. Um, we looked at the um, the summer season briefly uh, when we were doing the climate right. outlook at the start of the program. Uh, when will all the figures come out for rainfall for the total for uh, the uh, summer period? A couple of days?
15: Uh, yeah, and I should be published Friday afternoon on the on the Tasmanian scale. Um so you heard from David already and Yeah, yeah, spoke to, to David. Uh, um
2: He said it was average average rainfall for the East Coast uh in on summer and um Aaron at Swansea yeah. disagrees. <laughs> he,
15: yeah, well that's that's the thing. It was very very biased towards the start of summer and then all of a sudden it switched off. So what yeah. most people think of as summer's probably January, February, and that was quite dry on the east coast, but uh, de- December was a, a bit of a different story. Speaking of, of climate stats, I've got an interesting one for you today, Tony. Yeah. Uh, every station in Tasmania today reported the uh, coldest temperature so far this season. <laughs> 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 only the tried, first day. I tried to get... what the first day, yeah. And yeah, I've, got a, I've got you. a... a, a Strong indication that it could be the hottest day so far this season later on, but we'll have yeah. to wait for the OBS to come in.
2: Thank you, Luke. Um, any warnings?
15: Yeah, today we've got a strong wind warning current for the southeast and the southwest coasts and also for Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. Tomorrow the strong wind area shifts a little bit to the lower eastern and southern waters between Wineglass Bay to Low Rocky Point. Looking at the coastal waters, Uh, Westerly winds today, 15 to 25 knots, lighter and more variable about the upper east coast, reaching 30 knots over the far south and through Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. Tomorrow, westerly to begin with, 15 to 25 knots, lighter and more variable about the upper east coast, much like today. Uh, But uh, during the afternoon and evening, the winds will shift subtly 20 to 25 knots up the east coast. Also, we're going to see winds reaching 30 knots over uh, over the far south. In terms of swell west and south, we've got a west to southwesterly around three metres, increasing to four metres in the south during the afternoon and three to four metres in general uh, tomorrow. Through about Australia, westerly to one metre today and tomorrow and up the east coast, a southerly today tomorrow, uh, one to one and a half metres. And our significant wave height, the west coast, 2.5 metres at the moment and uh, on the east coast, we've got uh, just under one metres off the uh, Island.
2: Beauty. Thanks for that, Luke. Thanks, Tony. See so, you uh, uh, Luke Johnston from the Bureau with the latest information for you as we head into the autumn season. Uh, Mark the Painter. Good day, Mark the Painter on the text line says, ooh, chips back on the shelves. Thank goodness for that. Good on you, Mark. Oh, four three eight nine double two nine three six is that text line number. In a moment we'll talk about uh, farmers putting up fencing to stop the cows from going into the creeks.
0: Rick Goddard.
7: International Women's Day has been evolving over the years and I'm thrilled to be broadcasting again from the Royal Hobart Hospital Foundation's International Women's Day fundraiser March the 8th. The theme this year is Embrace Equity. So so, what does that look like in the world of medical research, in politics, and in governance in Tasmania? Spend a morning live with some of Tasmania's leading minds.
0: Rick Goddard, Monday to Thursday from 5:30am on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: Uh, Coming up shortly, we'll talk about uh, beef and the amount of beef going into China. And then Richard Bailey will be along with uh, the livestock markets, uh, reckons the mutton markets, uh, one of the meanest he's seen in many years. That's uh, coming up for you shortly. Well, it's not always just about getting maximum profit out of a farm. Most farmers really consider themselves custodians of the land. Matt Ryan's dairy farm sits right alongside a major waterway that spreads through the Sassafras, Wesley Vale, Port Sorel area. Some people call it Tasmania's food bowl. He considers it a duty to protect that waterway, which has been altered by farmers for nearly 200 years.
3: This is part of our farming property at Thurston, so we're standing right next to the Panatana Rivulet, um, just near Squeaking Point Road, which goes out into the Rubicon Estuary. There's three creeks that come together and all meet in Thurston and that's what makes up the Panatana Rivulet which comes out down in Port Okay. So this is basically the catchment for most of Sassafras, Moriarty, the district really. So it all comes down through here. There's only one other creek in more, more or less in the whole district which doesn't come down through here. Right. Yeah. So it's oh. quite a large, it's, it's the bottom of quite a large catchment really. It's highly modified, it's been highly modified for, you know, 200 years nearly. You know, these creeks were and wetlands were once much different to what they are now and, and it's been, you know, the, even the, the course of the creeks been altered over the generations to, to suit what farmers were doing at the time. However, there's a lot that we can do to you know, protect the water quality and protect what we've got left of the environment and even, even remediate some of it.
11: When did you start uh, fencing off your creeks like this? I can see it's a fairly new-looking fence, nice, uh, fresh fence posts.
3: Yep, so we've probably been doing a little bit um, over the last few years, but um, we're trying to accelerate it a bit now to... Um, you know get some outcomes to keep the keep the livestock out of the creek and um be able to do a bit of bit of remediation along the creek line and all that sort of thing.
11: What did this look like before you put the fences up
3: well I guess it it probably didn't look that bad there was some old fences here that were were pretty degraded and basically down and the cows, you know, or our livestock were able to get into the creek and get access to the creek and, of course, that doesn't do the side of the creek banks any good. So we've just been going through a process over a number of years of putting water troughs in every paddock and making sure that we're fencing them out and, and I guess we're re- trying to reset the farm, basically. So, yeah.
11: A big job after... What two hundred years this farm, this land would have been farmed?
3: No, I'm not exactly sure. So this particular property we've been on for about coming up six years, and it was multi generational prior to that. So yeah, it's it's it would be close to you know well between 150 and 200 years. Yeah, probably not 200, but certainly 150. I'd say this this country through here was uh, probably taken up um, in the 1850s. I think. European settlers yeah.
11: So you fenced this off and you've actually started to see some things grow back in the creek.
3: Yeah so we, we've got to a centre pivot irrigator here that actually does climb over across the creek so we've got bridges there and we've had to make some changes to be able to do that and we're seeing some blackwoods and um, tea tree and stuff coming up and as you can see just behind us here there's uh, an area um, between where we are now on the road which uh, isn't ever going to be irrigated um, and so we've gone out way wide with the fence about 12 metres off the um, off the creek line and we're going to do a bit of a re program here but it's amazing too even so if you just leave it alone how much it regenerates itself just by basically keeping the stock out.
11: Why do that with this section you could even though you don't irrigate you could just let cattle roam on it?
3: Well I think we're custodians of the land and that's really important that we try and leave it in a better state than what we found it and it is difficult to try and do it all at once. It's a, it's a process over time but it is important to keep the livestock out of, out of the creeks because they, do, they can damage the, the edge of the banks and all that sort of stuff and water quality for users and recreation and for the environment downstream is also important. Um, so i think you know all of those things add together and it you know believe it or not it does I, I believe anyway it's it's adding value to the to the farm as well but not that's not the driver for us the driver really is to try and um, you know i guess have a footprint here where we're running a commercial operation and we're part of an industry but also be, you know be active in actually leaving the, the place in a better state than what we found it
11: it's a quite an expensive thing to set up, you were saying, but you can get grants to help you out along the way.
3: Yeah, that's right. Like, um, you know, we were the beneficiaries of a small grant of about five thousand dollars to do some of this work, and we've spent a, a lot more than that. Um, but I guess that's a a contribution, um, you know, from the from the government. I guess that we're we're grateful for um, it. It's a bit like, say, renovating a house and somebody giving you a bit of assistance with the, the paint or something like that. It it, it really isn't a, a big contribution, you know, in relative terms to what, what all this stuff costs. However, it's, it's, um, it's appreciated.
11: So is it fair to say that the farmers who are doing this, uh, it's more of their choice to do it? They really have to put up a lot of the money themselves and see the value in it? rather than just getting a bit of funding and, and going, Why not?
3: Oh, I think so. But you know, I think if you think about it enough, there's there's benefits in doing this stuff from a commercial point of view. Like you, you don't want dairy cows getting down in creeks and drains and, you know, when they're when they're milking cows they end up with mastitis and all sorts of problems. So so there's a commercial reason to do it but I think really it's it's a twofold thing, you know, you you put the investment in, you're improving your property, you're improving an outcome for hopefully for the environment and um, also most things that you do that are good practice do end up actually rewarding you in the long run anyway. The main thing with this is that it is a big job and it does take time and it's it's the sort of thing that I guess if you wanted to do it all at once it'd, it'd be certainly a, a task for us that we'd find challenging if we had to do it all at once but what you find is you do a bit at a time and you know do a bit every year or a bit every winter when you've got time and you know, after four four or five years, you can really see that you've made a difference.
11: So is this something, this is not just a a one-year project that you're doing, but something that you'll just integrate into the management of your farm?
3: Oh, for sure. We'll be doing this sort of stuff until we retire. We've got lots more to do and and it's you know it's not a five-minute job, so this will just be ongoing for us. For while ever we're custodians of this farm, it'll be it'll be a process that we'll be continuing to do. And I mean fences don't last forever either. So by the time we probably get it all finished, it'll be time to start repairing the ones we just put up.
2: Thurston dairy farmer Matt Ryan showing Meg Powell how a simple thing like fencing is bringing native vegetation back onto his farm. Bruce the paddler on the text line says this farmer is a hero. Keeping stock out of waterways should be every farmer's aim. That's uh, from Bruce. Thank you for that, Bruce. And uh, JC says, according to you, it's cows kept out of waterways. What about bulls and steers? Not all cattle are female. JC, thank you for that too. Well, that's what they call it, Dairy Taz. They call it the cows out of Creeks grant program. And for any farmers who might want to do the same as Matt's doing, there's a little bit of financial incentive The Applications for the Government's Cows Out of Creeks Grant Program are now open. Derry Taz's Laura Richardson can tell us a bit more.
7: It's a wonderful program, Meg. Uh, Cows Out of Creeks is all about, as the name says, fencing stock out of waterways. We've just opened the ninth round of Cows Out of Creeks, so it's a really, really strong program that's supported by the Tasmanian Government. It does what the name says, fences, cows out of creeks, provides water troughs and other infrastructure to make sure that... We don't have stock in waterways, that we have good water quality for animals and and positive outcomes for the environment.
11: It's been going for nine years, as you said, at least nine years, potentially older than that. Are there any creeks left without fences around them?
7: Uh, There certainly is, and um, one of the great things about this round is that um, with the Tasmanian Government's support, we've expanded the options that people can do. So the, the guidelines this year will allow for... Uh, ephemeral streams and large drains and things like that to be fenced off as well so there are certainly properties that have water you know main waterways that that they may still wish to fence but we're also really mindful that a lot of farmers have done this and done it a long time ago you know uh, 15 20 30 years ago and so the guidelines have been expanded to allow for people to take that next step if they wish you know
11: how important is it to keep the cows out of the creeks surely they need water
7: Absolutely, they do, um, and they need clean water, and so part of what this program is is, is about making sure we 've got clean waterways because animals need clean water, the environment um, we 're also very mindful that you know farmers are custodians of the land that they manage and they want to have clean waterways for their farms, for society and all those other things. So it's fundamentally important. But there's many ways to get water to stock and, you know, it's, it's a much better management system if there's water troughs and, and on-farm infrastructure than relying on then our, our waterways for that stock water.
11: Is it good from a social licence perspective as well? People sometimes see dairy farms and go, oh, that's leaching into the waterways. And we know that does happen in agriculture.
7: Well, it does happen, but I'd like to think that from dairy farms that that is the extraordinary, not the ordinary. Dairy farmers want to keep um, whether it's effluent, whether it's nutrients um, on their farm because th- those things are actually productive to their business. But they're also mindful that you know they 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 live they live and work where they are, and they want that to be a, a, a great place to be, and they want their farm their, their environment to be what what broader society wants it to be so I think that, that farmers are really mindful of what their responsibilities are um, being custodians of those lands and um, these, this grant round just supports them in being able to do more.
11: Those farmers who have done it for a long time or who've taken it up fresh in the last few rounds What kind of difference does it make on their farm?
7: Uh, Look, I mean, all farms are different and and these grants are open to anywhere across Tasmania. So there's there's different environments. But I think some of the really positive things is by fencing off, you also have the ability to place in water troughs or other water infrastructure on your farm. And so there's lots of, there's the environmental um, benefits that, that are obvious. Not having stock in water and things means that there's, you know, there's, less opportunity for disturbance and pollutants and all those things. But there's lots of really strong benefits for um, for animal health and things like that too. So whether it's hoof care, whether it's the water that those cows are drinking and the quality of that. Um, so there's lots and lots of positives for farmers, you know, Um, in, in this, in, in just the practical production of their business, it's a great little program. It's $5,000 to incentivize people. And I think sometimes that little bit of help just means that you do it this year, not next year. And we really encourage people to consider it and, and apply.
11: So the the grant is $5,000 each.
7: That's right. It's $5,000 per project. Um, and um, it's, it's a rebate scheme. So people put in an expressions of interest, which is by the 30th of March, and then that'll be considered by a selection panel. So it's a competitive grant round. And then those approved projects have uh, over 12 months to complete their project. So um, we're mindful that seasonality can affect when you can actually sometimes get on the land to to do that fencing and so we allow some time for that to happen it's, it's well worth well worth considering is five thousand dollars a good helpful chunk of it? it? Every little bit counts, I guess. Yeah, it's a good incentive. Um, fencing costs, like a, like most inputs um, on farms, have gone up in recent times. But um, and and this five thousand dollars has been where it's been at for quite some time. But it's it's a little bit that helps, and and that's important. And um, a lot of our farmers will do this these projects they've got them in mind anyway so a bit of help might mean that we do it this year not next year or um, we do a little bit more um, which is often the case because certainly in the past with these grants um, farmers have spent well and above that five thousand dollars to complete projects and they've done you know expansive lengths of fencing and you know that's a credit to them they're really investing in what they're doing it's just a great program and um, you know encourage people to apply
2: Dairy Taz President Laura Richardson talking to Meg Powell about the Cows Out of Creeks grants program and you can head over to Dairy Taz website to apply before March 30th. To the beef industry now, China imported a record amount of beef last year buying more than 2.6 million tonnes from nations around the world. In its Global Beef Quarterly report out today, Rabobank predicts China's record beef consumption will continue to rise this year, presenting opportunities for Australia's cattle industry. Matt Brand spoke to analyst Angus Skidley-Baird.
10: General consumption in China we think is going to improve. The relaxation of the COVID restrictions late last year we believe should lead to to those consumers sort of becoming a little bit more active again but there are still some question marks around you know the economy there and how much it recovers Um, so we're expecting positive signs out of china but we're just not expecting the same sort of growth that we've seen in previous years uh in china
4: still though if
3: it's bigger than last year that's a lot of beef
10: yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, it's a huge volume into that market. Brazil sent one point one million tons over there last year, which I think is the biggest protein trade in the world. And it, it's yeah, it's it's a massive market. It does have an ability to to influence that global trade, uh, given the the volumes in and out of that market.
3: Brazil has been the biggest supplier of beef into China, but not right now as we speak. Uh, What is the latest information you've heard on that BSE case?
10: Yeah, so as of last week, the Brazilian government announced that they had that atypical case uh, and, and subsequently suspended their exports to China as per their trade protocols. So uh, they'll be working through that. How long is probably the question. Uh, they'll be suspended from that market. We did see a similar thing happen back in 2021, September 2021, and they reopened the trade in December 2021. So possibly this could be a month, a couple of months before the trade resumes. But yeah, with with that large volume, no one's going to be able to replace the volume. No one. We don't have a spare 1.1 million tons of beef floating around the world at the moment. So it will provide. Positive upside to, to prices. Um, we did see last time that happened in 2021. We did see Australia's exports to China increase. That increased by about 25% compared to the same period in 2020. And we saw the per unit export prices to to China lift as well. They lifted about 18%. So it it should provide some positive upside. But I think it'll probably be something that'll be resolved relatively quickly. Um, you know, both parties can't afford to have that trade suspended for a long period of time. So I think they'll work through it and and Brazil will go back to sending product into China. But it does provide a bit of positive upside for Australia.
3: Uh, The tests aren't back yet from Canada, is that right?
10: I haven't seen anything around uh, the formal um, test results. Um, So, yeah, still waiting on that. The the presumption is that it's an atypical case and, and that we'll be able to resolve it fairly quickly
3: and there's a lot of reporting and speculation around whether China might lift suspensions on some Australian abattoirs. Have you heard any any news in that space?
10: No, I haven't heard any news in that space, but I mean, yeah, it, it definitely is a more positive climate. Uh, we've got, you know, Chinese and Australian ministers meeting, um, you know, favourable indications in terms of some of our other trade with coal and I know the 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 guys were, were getting excited that they might be able to resume trade into there. We had a change in the import requirements from China that's no longer requiring those COVID inspections at port. So things becoming a little bit easier. The relationship's becoming a little bit better. This situation with Brazil and sort of shortage of product, you know, all those things are positives. Um, but I think we'll probably just wait and see. To see how things progress in terms of those uh, export licenses being re established.
2: Angus Gidley Baird, Senior Animal Protein Analyst with Rabobank, talking to Matt Bran about the growth in beef exports to China, presenting opportunities for the Australian cattle industry. Well, it's time now on a Wednesday afternoon to head out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? I'm travelling well, Tony. Excellent, excellent. And uh, Power Annie yesterday, how did things go? were uh,
16: smaller numbers across the board, really, at, uh, at the sale yesterday. Uh, smaller number of, of trade and grown cattle. Most of the yearlings sort of met similar market. The, the quality was pretty average, I've got to tell you. Um, they, they sort of met a similar market with restockers and, and uh, butchers in there. Uh, steers, yearling steers made three seventy to four hundred cents, and heifers three twenty to three fifty cents a kilo. There were some very heavy bullocks. Um, really uh, only one bar on those sort of bullocks apart from the the little bit lighter ones they made anywhere from 250 to 294 cents a kilo which is uh, pretty disappointing they were very very good bullocks Um, and the grown heifers 262 to 298 cents most of the cows were uh, heavy beef cows, and they met a similar market two fifty two to two hundred and sixty four cents a kilo, and then a few lighter ones back to the paddock at one hundred and sixty to one hundred and seventy dollars uh, cents a kilo. So, um, yeah, disappointing quality wise. Um, market held up okay.
2: Okay. When's the next weaner sale?
16: That's next, uh, not tomorrow, the following Thursday. Okay. Um, nutrient kickoff, uh, they have their fir- the first one, and then there are four in a row. Um, all 12 o'clock starts.
2: Beauty. All right, lamb and sheep, what happened there?
16: Okay, over in the lamb yard, there were only 849 lambs, so 400 less than last week. A little bit surprising, I thought. I mean, I know the over-the-hooks prices interstate are pretty good, and that's where a lot of our lambs are going, but... Um, our, our market I think has been pretty good for well finished lambs for you know, a few weeks now and I'm just a little bit surprised that we aren't getting um, a better a better quality line up of lambs there was basically no weight in the lambs at all yesterday um, but the lambs that were well covered um, good quality lambs they were dearer anywhere from 5 to $10 dearer um, the better better trade lambs made anywhere from $145 and topped at to $189 light trade $132 to $142 Restockers bought very small lambs from forty to sixty-six dollars. Light lamb sixty-eight to ninety-six, and then light trade ninety-six to one hundred and twenty-eight dollars a head. So they they put a good floor in that market. Over in the mutton yard, there are only eight uh, seven hundred and eighty-three sheep. Uh, this would be probably the cheapest market per kilo that I've seen in many years. Um, The market was basically back $15 to $20 in most cases. Uh, The the very heavy crossbred sheep made $52 and then the other heavy sheep made $50 to $70 and medium weight $50 to $72. There were restockers bought some breeding ewes in there from $68 to $72 and they did buy some ewes down as low as $44, so... Um, disappointing in the mutton yard, but uh, good sale in the lamb yard.
2: I reckon we ought to reignite that campaign to eat more mutton locally. Richard, what do you reckon?
16: <laughs> uh, most of our well, 90%, 99% of our mutton goes overseas, Tony, so um, I'll leave that one to you. Oh,
2: look, I know that, but gee whiz. Why don't we eat mutton? What's wrong with mutton? People love it.
16: I think at the moment they they like lamb and uh, that's the way they go.
2: Yeah. yeah. You, you, you're a mutton fan, aren't you?
16: Oh no! When we were farming, we we'd eat to-do's. Yeah, but we wouldn't eat. You know, we wouldn't eat five and six year old sheep. No.
2: Okay. All right, Richard. We'll talk to you on Friday. Good on you, Tony. There you go, Richard Bailey. Checking the mainland markets when he returns to the country hour on Friday. Down to forty four dollars uh, mutton. Very very cheap at the moment, and uh, we'll hear more about that. Uh, I'm sure with Richard on Friday when he returns. That is our Country Hour for today. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.